This morning's scripture reading comes from Jude. We're actually going to read the whole entire book of Jude. And boys and girls, don't worry, it's only one chapter long. You find it by going to Revelation and flipping one page back, and you're probably right at the start of Jude. So if you would please let us join together. We're going to read Jude uh, verses 1 through 25. And this is the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs in your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, <clears throat> prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters shouting, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved. 
building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And with Jude we too say, Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Last time we were together, last time I had the privilege of being able to worship with you, we began a series in the book of Jude. We just covered the first two verses. We didn't get very far. And on this Lord's Day, we're going to continue in Jude, and, and we're going to discover today Jude's purpose for writing the letter. And spoiler alert, it it's made evident in verses 3 and 4 that, that he's writing to encourage us to contend for the faith. However, as a, a point of quick review so that we're all on the same page, let me remind you of what we discovered in the opening two verses last time we were together. And that being that we are to be reminded of the gospel prior to being exhorted to contend for the gospel. We, we understand, we are told what the gospel is before we extract the implications. So let us follow the example that it's set out in Scripture and set out here in Jude, and let us be reminded of the good news. And I always take this mindset that, that those who hear the gospel message need to hear the bad news first. Unless there's anyone here today who has never heard the good news, let me just first tell you the bad news, and that is this. Adam, being, our, being man's federal head and representative, when, when he sinned and committed the most heinous act of high treason imaginable, defying the omnipotent God of the universe, creator of all things, at that moment, the guilt from that act fell upon Adam as well as all of his generations. That would be you and me all those that would come after him. We are literally saddled with his sin. And lest you say, hey, that's, that's so unfair. I'm not the one who committed this high treason. Well, you got to understand, every single one of us follows in Adam's footsteps. We wouldn't have done any better if we had been in his shoes. Because scripture says, no one, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. That's how scripture describes us. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It says in Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you are saved, it is because you've been called. 
And if you are a Christian here this morning, it's because you've been graciously and, and personally and effectually called by God himself through the, through the proclamation of the gospel. If you are a Christian, it's because God has called you. And if you've been called by the Father, it is because you are loved by God the Father. There's nothing at all in any single person that makes us lovable to God but rather based solely on his sovereign pleasures for reasons that are just beyond all comprehension. God, the Father, has purposed to set his love on sinners and to save them. And if he loves you, Christ will assuredly keep you. Are you a Christian? Then you are because God has called you and he's called you because he loves you. And if he loves you, he will assuredly keep you called, loved, and kept. You'll see those in the first two verses and that's what we discussed last time we were together. As we were studying through Jude, that's where we left off. Called, loved, and kept. As we continue our study, we'll discover that the, this book of Jude is, is literature unlike any other. It is essential reading for anyone who wants to live for Christ and to ultimately die in Christ. Is, is it your heart to live for Christ and to ultimately die in Christ? Then... It is indeed essential reading for you as it is the voice of God to you this morning. So let us join together. We're going to look in Scripture. We're going to look in verses 3 and 4. That's where we're going to go to today. If you would, just, I'm hoping you didn't close your Bible. I always say this. Come to church with an open Bible, not an open mind. So look down with me. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let me start off by saying that the letter that we're reading, the letter that we did read, is not the letter that Jude started with. It's not the one that he began to write or even wanted to write. It's, this is not the letter that Jude was really intending to give us. And so the question you have to ask yourself, does that mean that we've got the wrong letter? And the answer is no. Let me, let me explain. If, if you come to my house, if you come to the Tucker's household, I have four kids. So this is said quite often. Because as children, what do children want to do? They want to do what they want to do before they do what they need to do. And so I'll always tell the kids, no, no, no we do what we have to do, what we need to do before we do what we want to do. And this is, in essence, what Jude is saying in this first verse here. If you can kind of just imagine Jude, he's, he's sitting at his table with, with quill in hand and his parchment sitting there, and he's, and he's, he's about to write a, a more leisurely letter, a, a, probably one about his favorite topic. He even tells you he's, he's, his thought process is this, that he's, he's about to write about their common salvation, those things which we hold in common as believers. But, but this thought just keeps interrupting and nagging about a present challenge 
that the church is facing. And so what does he do? He, he crumples up that piece of parchment or doesn't even bother putting the pen to the uh, quill to, to the parchment. Instead, he begins to write this. He goes, you know, I wanted to, to write to you about all that is ours in the way of common salvation, but I've dropped everything because what I need to say to you is a matter of urgent necessity. My paraphrase. Jude said that he, he wanted to write about our common salvation. He wanted to, to communicate to his Christian brothers and sisters the, the glorious truths that, that bind us all together as brothers and sisters in Christ. A common salvation, a grace which we all participate in. And in a divided world, we the church, you have to understand, we participate in a common salvation. There, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no, neither male or female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in Galatians. That's the way he puts it. And one gets this sense of Jude's eagerness and excitement about, about writing to Christians about the wonderful salvation we all enjoy, but something happened. Something caused him to, to change his original purpose for writing, and it became more necessary to, to write to them about the fact that they've been half asleep. They've been half asleep at the wheel and allowed people to, to creep in unnoticed into their congregation, and not just certain people, but ungodly people who have an evil agenda. And we're going to look at those people more closely shortly. But he says here, but I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. I want you to notice what Jude says here. He says, the faith. And in other words, he's, he's not talking about the fact that they believe. He's, he's not talking about the faith that the master teacher and loving pastor speaks of in Hebrews, the, the writer and author of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith. You should read it today between services. That kind of faith is, is the way I define it, is the God-given. It's a God-given gift, the ability to believe and to act upon his revealed will. That is what the, the loving pastor and master teacher of Hebrews lays out there. And that's not what the faith Jude is speaking of. What Jude is referring to, he's talking about, the, about faith objectively. In other words, an, an objective body of truth that is unchanged and, and unchanging, that, is, that has been expressed and, and settled once and for all and, and entrusted to believers. It is the sum and substance of, of Christian faith, of Christian truth, I should say. It is the gospel. So brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel is, is not a message invented by the church or by its preachers. It is given, not found by us. It is a message which comes from God, but which has been placed in the hands of the church. It is a message which God delivered himself, delivered to our custody, that we might keep it for eternity. And I want you to notice that the message is once and for all delivered. 
I want you to understand that the unfolding revelation of, of God's truth became, came to its completion at, in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. Uh, Jesus is none other, none other than the Word of God incarnate. Read John, just the first chapter of John. John 1 1 and John 1 14. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And so no further revelation is possible this side of glory. God spoke in the Old Testament times, but, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. In the Old Testament, visions, dreams, angels. He spoke to us by His Son. And that's why in Matthew it says, tells us that Jesus is God with us. The Lord Jesus was able to say to his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so it is that, that with the coming of Christ and the giving of the New Testament, the revelation of God's truth for salvation is complete. There's no more to be added. There's nothing more at all that can be added. But you have to keep in mind when it comes to, to attacks on the Word of God, they come largely on two fronts. By addition, which we've kind of just covered, but also by deletion. There are to be no additions and, and no subtractions from Scripture. All, all that we all that we meet in our Christian experience is to be, is to be tested by scriptures in, in, in its totality from, from, from cover to cover. We don't, we don't pick and choose the sections we like, although in practice you see it done all the time. That is not what a Christian does. We receive all of it as it is, the word of God. And this is absolutely crucial for the health of the church. It has always been a battleground down the ages of the church history, and it's going to continue to be so, and especially in, the uncoming, in these uncoming years. In this unchanging body of truth, the faith Jude says here is to be contended for. The thing that you have in your lap is to be contended for. And this exhortation of Jude's to contend is a specific call to action. It's a, a call to contend for the gospel of Christ. It's a, a call to protect and defend the gospel when the message of the gospel is threatened. And notice, I want you to notice here and, and listen closely and I'll try my best to explain it. Notice that it's not a call to proclaim the gospel. This is not an exhortation to the important work of evangelism. And now I've said that you're probably saying, you're thinking to yourself, is Jason saying that proclaiming the gospel is not important? No, not at all. What I am saying is that that's not Jude's emphasis. Jude's, is what he's doing is he's emphasizing protecting the gospel. This is a call to contend, not proclaim. And What he's calling us to contend for, Jude is emphasizing protecting the gospel. This is a call to, con to protect the thing that we're called to proclaim. 
to make sure that we're proclaiming the right thing. Because false teachers and false teachings have infiltrated the church and what they're doing is they're advers uh, adversely affecting the church by perverting the gospel. This is a call to contend. This is a call to defend. This is a call to action. This is a call to very intense action. This word contend calls to mind at, at an athletic event where there's an intense competing taking place, where full effort is both required and being exerted. I know it's the wrong time of year for this, but, but most individuals in this room, I'm hoping, will get this analogy, although all analogies fall short eventually. Imagine, if you will, and this is totally imagination because it's never going to happen, but imagine the Maple Leafs are in the Stanley Cup. Game seven, overtime, next goal wins. You can imagine the level of intensity both teams are playing for, playing at. And, and they're playing for a mere cup. And the brief and fleeting fame that comes from winning that cup. Take that and put it on steroids and that's what it's saying we ought to do. The same level of exertion we, we are to, to put forth in protecting and guarding the truth which we've received. This Greek word to contend it's epiagonosmai. I can never pronounce it properly. But you kind of hear this word agonize in there. It's to, to exert intense effort on the behalf of something. That, that root word, agon, it, it, it's where we get our root word, agony from, to agonize. It has to do with a struggle, a trial, or, or an action of battle. And by adding that word, that little epi on the front, what it does is it serves to intensify that Action And so Jude's called Christians to, to fight for, to fight strenuously for, to fight intensely for the truth. We're called to contend for the gospel where appropriate and where necessary contend we must. And we must learn the appropriateness of contending in an age of so-called tolerance. And we must contend for the gospel without being contentious. A lot of us aren't good at that. We're called to contend without being contentious in a world of so-called tolerance, which really does not tolerate anything that you believe. For certain people, verse 4, have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It says here, crept in. I want you to notice that Jude is telling us we face a particular challenge with particular enemies. The particular challenge we are facing is that the enemy we are confronted with is not an external enemy. We do not face an external challenge, but, but an internal challenge. Boys and girls, you know what 
Have you ever watched a show? I was going to say Lord of the Rings, but you can, whatever show you want, where they have a castle and they have these walls around the castles. And on the top of it, those are called ramparts. And the ramparts, the, what, what do you see? You see all these guards looking out and the archers looking out. And what are they doing? They're defending the castle. But Jude's saying you're, facing, you're standing on the ramparts and facing the wrong way if you're looking out. Because the ramparts were, were you're meant to look out at all those who are attacking you, looking at a foreign enemy, but rather Jude's saying, if you want to know how this castle's gonna come down, how this building will be destroyed, it won't be a result of what happens on the outside. It won't be because of competing religions. It won't be because of the Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, or Muslims. It won't be because of atheists, humanists, progressives, or even the latest ruling govern governments. That's not how this gets shattered. The Bible, well, the Bible bears testimony to that. When anyone or anything came after the church to persecute God's covenant people, what happened? The church grew, it, it, it flourished. The, the blood of the martyrs has proved to be the seed of the church throughout all of its history. No, the, the fact that none of the seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation, the fact that none of them are left, the fact that the church crumbles in North America, the fact that places that were once known as citadels of, of the truth no longer have the same vibrancy is not because of the secular culture, but it's because of internal collapse. And it's for that reason that Jude encourages us to contend for the faith, to stand upon the ramparts and turn around and look in. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And listen to this. This is Jude describing these men to us, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And now that we know that the enemies are actually within the gate, what does Jude do? He gives us a basic description of these false teachers. So obviously in Jude's time, individuals of influence, men or women, have come into the church and they're perverting the church with false teachings and even to the point of denying Christ. And so he, he lays some description out so that what we can do is we can recognize them and they don't look a whole lot different today than they did back then. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in sensuality. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the, the invitation, the gospel invitation is this. Come as you are, right? Come as you are. You don't have to clean up to come. You come dirty. I will clean you up. But come as you are. And what Jude is saying is that these enemies have changed the gospel message to you can stay as you are. Are you catching that distinction? 
I'm hoping no one in this room balked at me saying, come as you are. Because we don't clean ourselves up to come to Christ. We come dirty and as we are, but he doesn't leave us that way. But the message that these ungodly who are perverting the gospel are saying, you can stay as you are. And that's, that's a seductive message because even churches which seek to be faithful to the scriptures, they, they face this pressure to, to turn the grace of God into a reason to embrace sin within the church. And I'm sure that you can sit here, every, a good chunk of you can probably just sitting right where you are right now, it wouldn't take you much effort at all to think of a church or a denomination or, or, or a spiritual leader who was once a solid beacon of truth but it's kind of pulled back from the truth. And maybe they're doing it to appeal to culture or to, to appear relevant to the, a new generation, to, to avoid being canceled. There, the reasons might be varied. You know, being a chaplain with the police, I get asked this, well, doesn't, doesn't God love adulterers or thieves or prostitutes or addicts or, or alcoholics? I'm sure you've been asked a similar question, just insert different sins there. And the implication of that question is that if God loves them, then we should accept people as they are within the fold of the church, but with no further demands. But that is to pervert the truth of the love of God. Yes, God loves all sinners. And God loves all sinners, and every true Christian is still a sinner. But God has only loved one person the way he is. And we've lost sight of that fact, that the way we are by nature that put Christ on the cross. And the biblical perspective is quite different. God loves us despite the way we are. And becoming a true Christian is to sincerely own Jesus as Lord and to seek with God's help to obey him. And this means that whatever our besetting sins, whatever they are, we must be seeking to fight against those sins in our lives, not trying to legitimize them or say they, they, that they don't matter. We have no right to believe anything other than, than what Jesus has taught. And we have no freedom to, to behave in any other way than what he demands. And as the rest of the epistle of Jude will make clear if the, if the Lord wills and we move our way through, you're going to find out that contending for the faith, what it does involves a struggle to maintain a, a godly lifestyle within the church as well as a, a lifestyle which ought to be the resulting fruit of the gospel in people's lives. Our lifestyle should be a fruit of the gospel within our lives. And this separation between belief and behavior, it flows from ideas of the enlightenment, not the Bible. The idea of knowing the truth but not living it is anathema to biblical thought. 
It would mean to actually, that actually a person does not know the truth at all. And in verse 4, Jude speaks of false teachers who make the grace of God into license to immorality. And it is not only, a, when he says to contend for the faith, it's not only against erroneous teaching that he's telling us to contend, but against sinful behavior among professing Christians. That he calls us to battle when he calls us to contend for the faith. Belief and behavior are, are, are forever and always linked together. To contend for the faith means concerning ourselves with Christian duty as well as Christian doctrine. And brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is when you can get your fingers bit. Nothing bites harder than someone when you're trying to help remove their favorite sins, bit and bridle. The minute you, you go to remove the bit from their mouth, you can lose a finger. Let me ask you, do you bite when someone comes to you in brotherly love and says, brother, you're sinning. You need to repent. How many digits have you lopped off? I guarantee you, I've probably bit a few. Verse 4, and to deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a shocker. To deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's also written. Peter writes it in 2 Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Like, I mean, it says here, the truth will be blasphemed because of that. That people will fall into sensuality just to follow their sensuality. They'll follow the message that tickles their ears, those messages that go places only Q-tips should go. And it'll lead them into sensuality. The truth will be blasphemed. And your condemnation and destruction is not idle. How terrifying. If we're genuine Christians, we have no freedom to believe anything other than what Jesus taught. What Jesus taught, he then gave to his apostles, and the apostles then wrote it down in Scripture, and that not only gave the revelation of who Jesus is and what he has done, but they gave the interpretation of that revelation. And as our world progresses down its slippery slope that is the logical conclusion of postmodern philosophy, that being all truth is relative, there, there is no absolute truth. What you do is you begin to see that Christian faith based in the Bible becomes, in the world's eyes, 
seemingly unexciting, uninformed. And what happens is the church is then tempted to leave the old paths of the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints and to, and to follow other voices, false teachers, vain philosophies, and the ever-changing desires of men. And all of those are devoid of power to save. The body of Christian truth, which Jude calls the faith, is the, is the treasure of God given to the church. It is the church's great treasure because by it, people are saved and taken from the abject poverty of sin and given the riches of eternal life in Christ. And so it is that the church has sought to defend the faith and to contend for the faith and we must contend for the faith whether the gospel is popular or whether it is not. We must do this when society believes in God and when it does not. We must do this when it is intellectually respectable to be a Bible believer and when it is not. We must do it when Christianity is the dominant faith in the country and when it is just one voice amongst many voices. The church must do this whether it is in the midst of a rising civilization or whether its culture is collapsing all around it. The church must do it in the modern world of science and objectivity and in the postmodern New Age world dominated by image, emotions, and subjectivity. The church must do it when it's in the midst of revival and renewal and when it is suffering, dwindling, and small. The church's primary call is not to be popular among people, but to be faithful to God. There are those who feel that it is easier just to, to keep their heads down and hope for the best. But wars are never fought that way, or they're never won that way. The call is clear we are to contend for the faith. If there's anyone in here who's either watching online or here at this present moment, you've heard me refer to the gospel, the good news, and I told you at the start the bad news. If everything I've said to you has been foreign in terms of I don't understand what, why it is that, that I would defend something I don't know if it's true or if I don't know if I love the one who's proclaimed it, and yet I'm still drawn. Let me just pause and say for a second. There was a man in the, in the Gospels who came to Christ, and Christ said to him, all things are possible for them that believe. And the man boldly stands up and says, I believe. And I love it how the Bible then says, he instantly turns to Christ and says, help my unbelief. If all that you've heard today you're struggling with and you don't like the fact that you have unbelief, this is where you turn to Christ and say, help my unbelief. Turn to him in repentance and faith. And this is what I love is that we have the promise. He'll by no means cast you out. And that great treasure the means by which God saves his people, the proclamation of the gospel that he grants us faith to believe in, to take us out of the abject poverty of sin and then place us into his kingdom 
of glorious light and eternal blessedness is applied and becomes applied to you and becomes yours. Let me encourage you if you're struggling today, repentance and faith turn to him and he'll by no means cast you out. And then the call to contend for the faith, which means contending for the doctrine as well as contending for the living, how you're going to walk that out will then become your occupation and your great joy. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we've learned that we are in, if we're in Christ, it is because you have called us. And you've called us because you've loved us. And you've shown your great love towards us in the most convincing and comprehensive and concluding way possible in that the life and death and resurrection of your son, he who did not spare his own son, what more could you give? What more could you do to show us your love? And if you love us, you will assuredly keep us those whom God has called to himself are loved by him and kept by him until the day of salvation. What a glorious truth, and it is a truth that we've been commanded to contend for. It is a truth worthy to be contended for. It is, a, it is the church's great treasure because by it people are saved and taken from abject poverty of sin and given the riches of eternal life in Christ. And so as we meditate on these truths throughout this oncoming week and, and even today, Father, use it to embolden us to share this treasure, the gospel, with others and use it to further our sanctify, uh, sanctify us and to, to conform us to the image of your Son that we might glorify him by our good works. the sake of Christ, for the love of Christ, and empowered by Christ, we ask in his name. And we all say, Amen.